Well, um, I am glad you all came out in the weather, uh, especially considering the conditions we have. I want to welcome some people on the Zoom today. Welcome to you all. Hope you enjoy the study. Um, we are in John. We did chapter 18 last week. We're doing chapter 19 this week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is bound. He has been arrested. He's now um, facing six trials before his eventual crucifixion. Uh, Pilate questions Jesus, and the temple leaders uh, question Jesus. Uh, and inside these two groups, there are questions um, and accusations. And we begin to see all, see all the concealed hypocrisy um, and the true motives of Jesus's accusers are revealed in their questions. And in chapter 18 last week, we witnessed Pilate um, piercing through the apparent um, motive of the Pharisees, and he drilled down on their true desire. They wanted Jesus to die. And so today we will see the interchange between Pilate and Jesus continue, and it will escalate. And the as the original charges against Jesus uh, move from a religious nature and a ceremonial law violation, and they take it right to the level of a political crime against the empire. And from that, Pilate cannot back down. So in pursuit of truth, um, that's what the trial was supposed to be about. Pilate uh, will uh, contort his pursuit of truth into a compromise of indifference for political expediency, which leads to the suppression of truth and the perversion of justice. And now what happened to Pilate happens to every one of us every time we are confronted with truth, um, especially the truth of Jesus. And we refuse to re accept it. And that happens with everyone. And so they will suppress the truth and they will pervert justice. And we will see that played out in chapter 19 today. So let's say a very quick prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us here safely. We pray for those who are still um, on the roads today that you would be with them. We pray for those who've uh, suffered accidents along the way that you would be with those who attend to them. We pray for those who are even now... Um, uh, under the, the the pain and suffering of a storm and threats of violent weather. So bless and protect us and help us in this study. May our um, thoughts be alive in you. May your spirit be alive in us. And may these words uh, pierce deeply into our hearts so we'll be more like you when we leave today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So let's turn to chapter 19, the Gospel of John, and we're going to start at the first verse. And um, I divided up this whole interaction between Pilate and Jesus and about uh, to several episodes. So in, in my counting from the last chapter to this one, this is the first little uh, pocket of information. It'll be first three verses. Um, and it starts like this. I'm reading from the ISV. I felt their translation was good for this chapter. Then Pilate had Jesus taken away and whipped. And the soldiers twisted some thorns into a victor's crown and put it on his head. And they threw a, a purple robe on him. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Long live the king of the Jews! And then they began to slap him on the face. Now, we need to get some additional insight from other biblical books. Isaiah is one I would advise us to look at. Chapter 50 of Isaiah is a prophetic chapter about Messiah. And listen to what the verses tell us and how well this was written 700 years before this event. Verse 6 of chapter 50 of Isaiah, I offered my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who tore up my beard. I did not hide my face from their scorn and spittle. Those soldiers are not just being tortuous with Jesus. Um, we know historically that flogging um, that was ordered by Pilate on Jesus was likely conducted with, con conducted with a Roman whip. Um, an instrument called a cat of nine tails is typically like an old whip. It's got a handle. It's got a strand of leather, but this has nine strands of leather. And at the end of each of those straps of extinctions uh, of leather will be tied some very hard objects. Sometimes they were bone, broken glass, metal, lead, things like that. And they would, uh, result of this whipping, this instrument of torture, is sometimes it would literally disembowel the victims because it would wrap around their waist and when they would, it would embed in their flesh and then they would have to jerk it to pull it out. And when they would, it would, it could literally tear the flesh open. It could, they could die. Those who didn't die from this um, would sometimes become insane with the pain of the torture. So um, the second thing that's going on here is that this is not just a public humiliation of Jesus, um, the man, the criminal of Rome. This is also a mockery of the idea that Israel could have a king and a savior. This is an attack on messianism, the idea that was prevalent in that day, that the Messiah is going to come and kill all you Romans. So they're just making jokes of this whole, this whole situation. 
Now, the crown of thorns, the purple cape, and the reed scepter, they're all done not only to demean and humiliate Jesus, but also the entire Jewish nation. And now I want you to think about, here's my first Easter egg for you today. Think about the deeply poetic nature of this one single detail in this grand arching story of creation and redemption, the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns are embedded into the innocent brow of Jesus, and those thorns were the result of the curse of sin in the garden. It says this in Genesis, Cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field the next little section we look at is chapter in this chapter is verses four through five and this is from the berean study bible verse four once again Pilate came out and said to the jews look i am bringing him out to you and to let you know i find no basis for a charge against him and when jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe Pilate said to them here is the man. Or many translations say, behold the man. In Latin, it's these words, eke home. And uh, again, we see um, this day transpiring exactly the way the Holy Spirit showed Isaiah that it would in chapter 50. Look at verse 8 of chapter 50 of Isaiah. It says this, the one who vindicates me is near. Who will dare to contend with me? Let us confront each other. And he says this, who has a case against me? And his judge, Pilate, steps out the governor and says, this man's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. There's no case against him. Let him approach me. And in verse 9, he continues like this. He says, surely the Lord God helps me. Who is there to condemn me? And that was Pilate's whole issue, was there was innocence in this man. There was no crime here. We'll see this um, play out further. Pilate's doing everything he can to avoid responsibility here, putting, of, of putting an innocent man to death. Now, there's a principle that we learn from this. For us, even as we face chaos and disappointment in our lives, we know that God is in control of every twist and every turn because it's all part of his will. The will of God is always for his glory and for our good to bring the maximum number of souls into the salvation and the redemption of humanity through the work of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And Pilate makes one of those historically haunting statements in this drama. He makes several. And this is another one. Behold the man. So here is Jesus, the man of men. He is the ultimate Adam. He is the perfect specimen. And Pilate tries to placate the mob by reinforcing the humanity of Jesus. He did not, he, he sidestepped all this royal notion of this king of the Jews and this divine monarch. Because Pilate did not say, behold your king. He said, behold the man. But the torturous treatment that he inflicted on Jesus was not enough to satisfy the Sanhedrin. They were demanding blood. And Jesus, uh, the story continues in verse 6 of chapter 19. As soon as the chief priests and officers saw him, they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, you take and crucify him. For I find no basis for a charge against him. And then things begin to turn in verse 7. We have a law, answered the Jews. And according to that law, he must die. Well, why has he got to die? Because he declared himself to be the son of God. That also is a very good point for those who say that Jesus never declared himself deity or God. It shows up as evidence in his trial. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The conflict within Pilate is growing greater. He was even more afraid, and he went back into the praetorium, and he asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate once more is confronted with this mysterious truth of the identity of this man that stands before him, this Jesus of Nazareth, and fear is striking him to his core. This is what happens to many people today. Think about it. When people face the implications of the reality of the identity of Jesus, people shrink back in fearful alarm because they realize that they are no longer some independent, free moral agent as culture and society would like to tell them. You know, you're just living a life and then one day you're going to die and your skin's going to dissolve back into dust and it's all over. Because the reality of Jesus, 
announces an eternal existence. And every action of this life will be weighed and it will be judged and it will be assigned an appropriate reward or consequence for the action. So Pilate is alarmed by these words and Pilate draws back from the public arena and the privacy of the closed walls. And he asks again, who are you? But Jesus, fully aware of his mission, he has a rendezvous, a rendezvous with a Roman cross. And he and the he is aware, I think, of the state of Pilate's mind. And Jesus does not raise a personal defense, which could have easily persuaded Pilate to assert himself and set Jesus free. Jesus fulfills prophecy, remaining silent before his accuser. In verse 7, Pilate takes a claim of one declaring himself to be son of God quite seriously. It is alarming. Yes, sir. Thank you. You read the verse in Isaiah that said his face was so disfigured, or you get into that? Um, no, I I didn't get to that one. So in nineteen, there he, he's, when he says, "Behold the man," and in Isaiah it says they plucked out my beard, they did other things to me, they slapped me in the face. We know that here, but in Isaiah it says his face was so marred that you could hardly tell it was a man, and this is the guy. So Pilate doesn't even think he's guilty. This tells you something about the Romans and, and, and just justice back then. Just beat him up, mess him up bad. I mean, he's not guilty, but, but I gotta, I gotta satisfy these people. So just do something to him. So when he is saying, behold the man, you're looking at a man who's been beaten, who's been slapped. His face is so badly beaten. You can hardly tell it's a man. That's what Isaiah says. Now, it may be later as the bruises start to come. It may not be right at this moment, but he's already been slapped and beaten. Uh, it's, um, I know a lot of people didn't like it, but that Passion of the Christ probably does. That movie Mel Gibson did probably does about as good a job as, as this as any. And it was so bad. People criticized it. To say, yeah, they got a rating for it. This is too ugly. Yeah. It probably didn't even. It probably came as close to it as possible. But that's what he's saying when he says, behold the man. It's no king. Look at him. Look yeah. at what I've done to him. And then, of course, they, he gets more nervous, and that's where we are now. But yeah. he's already been beaten and slapped around, probably had his beard pulled out. Yeah, the other Gospels do give us some additional light, which I didn't, um, for our sake today, I didn't go into those other details from the other Gospels in our study. Yes, sir. Verse 13, there's a minority report that says Pilate sat him down uh, on the pavement. So instead of Pilate sitting down and rendering judgment, he sits Jesus down. And therefore, you know, again, it's ironic. Jesus is the king. Um, and I think it, it deserves at least some of our consideration. It might be a possibility. You cannot tell the story of the gospel without irony. You know, Jesus is enthroned on the cross. He is uh, declared king of the Jews, and he can't be king. So this total irony all the way through, which tells us you can't uh, uh, figure out God by intuition. God has to reveal himself to you. He's so different from you. Yeah, and I think the other part about this is, and I hope we'll illustrate it, is that the, um, the story, 
um, and the details of the story stretching across thousands of years of recorded history, biblical history and human history, uh, secular history, uh, cannot be fabricated by people and sort of woven together and made up by men. It is so uh, complex and interwoven. I'm, I'm going to bring something to you right now. It's your first Easter egg of the day. Um, it's alarming for Pilate. And this is why you see in the domain of the Roman Empire, those in positions of leadership and points of authority, they were tasked with reporting strange activities back to the imperial capital for further investigation. Pilate has an obligation here as a civil Roman official to take notes and perhaps take action, perhaps render an official report. In fact, uh, the report of the resurrection of Jesus will become so widely proclaimed that it will make its way back to Rome and be part of an official Roman Senate proceeding where there's a group of people, as reported, who were advocating that the Roman Empire should recognize the divinity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, not as the God, but a, a God in the pantheon of Roman gods. Um, and there is uh, so there's some footnotes in your notes where you can look at those. Um, Pilate also called Jesus back inside to question him um, away from the face of his accusers. And Pilate expects Jesus to act like any natural man, to do everything he can to spare his life, to escape with his life. Um, but Jesus is no ordinary man. So Jesus has refuses to respond to defend himself. And Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth as a lamb that is led to the slaughter, as a sheep that goes before his shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus will not open his mouth to defend himself and is approaching to the cross. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, because the Lord has helped me, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So Jesus does not seek to step out of the will of the Father as he sees the cross approaching him. He's going to stay on this path. Um, and so then in verse 10, Pilate asked him, do you refuse to speak to me? I mean, do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And now Jesus speaks in verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jews kept shouting, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is defying Caesar. So Jesus does not speak up in his own defense, but he does speak up and correct Pilate's worldview. Pilate sees himself as the ultimate authority right here in this situation, but Jesus corrects him and says rather boldly for a man who's in captivity, you have no power over me. Talk about irony. In reality, Pilate is on an errand. He's nothing more than an errand boy doing the will of the Father in heaven. And this is a place where we again see one of the great doctrines of our faith on display. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And God is always in control. Um, every situation, every detail, everything in our lives, every circumstance, God is all working out all aspect of our lives and the lives of others to draw as most number of souls back to himself as possible. And God allows pain in our lives. God allows pleasure in our lives. God permits trials. He permits triumphs. And we find peace in all circumstances when we stay our minds on Christ Jesus. The internal struggle that Pilate is going through here and his personal conflict over who is this Jesus, it grows even stronger. Now, as a Roman governor, Pilate knows quite clearly the difference between someone who's a rogue rebel who leads a revolt against the empire and between an innocent man. He's no fool. He can tell the difference. He has to deal with it a lot. Remember, the Messiah stuff is really strong in the culture at this time. In verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement, which in Hebrew is called Gabbatha, which is what you're speaking about, Pastor Perry. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, now he says it, here is your king. And then they shouted, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. And the high priest responded, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate handed him over to be crucified, and they took Jesus away. Now, Pilate is taking this event from public to private settings, back and forth, again and again, as he's wrestling on how to navigate this dilemma. 
He is debilitated by his uncertainty. And Pilate has to his hand forced by these temple leaders because they take this thing very publicly and they make Pilate choose between saying Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. We have no king but Caesar, they replied. So Pilate's in a very uncomfortable position. It's untenable. He is on the one tasked by Rome to execute enemies of the empire. He's also tasked to report supernatural events occurring within his boundaries of the empire. And he knows that the temple leaders can get their side of the story back to Rome. And if that happens, Pilate could lose his position, his opportunity to move up in the ranks in the imperial structure of the government. And if he takes off the wrong person in that crowd, Pilate could lose his own life. And he cannot allow himself to um, allow the situation to escalate into some sort of a full-blown riot, which would get back and report it to the empire, uh, his superiors in the empire. So Pilate's trying to find a way to navigate this entire situation. It's very treacherous waters for him. And his initial impression of Jesus and this situation is changing as he goes along. Verses 16 to 22. And then Pilate handed, yes, sir. Capital punishment, the authority for capital punishment did not rest in the Jews' hands any longer. It had it rested with the Jews or with the Romans. And so part of the the story here is that in order to kill Jesus, they had to accede to Rome's authority. And uh, I think that that's part of the, the story as well. Well, it reminds us back when Jesus confronts the woman, they bring the woman found in adultery without a man. Was a really strange way to commit adultery, huh? All alone. Right? Yeah. And so, so, but, but there they're telling Jesus to kill this woman, knowing the whole time they don't have the authority to kill him. Yes, sir? Um, just to tag on to his point, um, in the early chapter of Acts, when the apostles are preaching, they lay the blame for the crucifixion at the feet of the Jews, not the Romans. Yeah. So, and we will get into that later. The The, re, the ultimate responsibility for the death of Jesus, and this is going to be a little tricky for you, is the Father in Heaven. Because the Father in Heaven is the one who allowed it. The Father in Heaven is the one who called for it to take place. Then the next responsibility is with us as sinners because we have to have that death to have our redemption. And so even though there are evil men plotting and doing wicked things and horrible things to our innocent Savior, all of that must be done in order so that we can experience our salvation and have our relationship with God restored. Yes, sir? In this, it's, it's filled with anti-Semitism right now, college campuses and so on and so forth that's been exposed by this horrendous fight in Israel. But... Uh, Christians who have been one of the few supporters of the Jews in the United States are also hung with the tradition of calling uh, Jews Jesus killers, you know, and we have to uh, know that that's part of our tradition as well, even though uh, on the most part we have uh, uh, supported them as our brothers, even though they don't believe in Jesus, we are we're, we're the grafted in. They're the originals, um, and so um, I think we have to take uh, what that uh, Dutch pastor said in one of the movies. Uh, you know, whoever goes after the Jews goes after the apple of God's eye, and uh, so yes, Matthew says quotes. Uh, the Jews for crying out, his blood be upon us and our children. Well, okay. Um, uh, the judgment is on them, but it's not us, ours to say, it's not ours to judge them. They are still God's chosen people. Uh, and so, again, we have to recognize the mixed heritage that we have as Christians. You know, we, we call them, and yet we have supported them because we know that they're God's chosen people. So it's kind of a mix that... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think Paul uh, goes into that in quite detail in the book of Romans, and certainly the entire, most of the entire book of Revelation is about the redemption of the nation of Israel and God calling his, uh, his people home back to salvation. Um, yeah, so, and yeah, so, we, so I do not uh, believe in a replacement theology that the church replaces the nation of Israel and the promises of God. I think that's very bad theology. I think it leads to a lot of uh, misunderstanding, and it does lead to a lot of, of bad things. 
uh, done in the name of good. Thank you for that. In verse 16, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. 18. There, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate also had a notice posted on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the Jews, so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but only that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. In verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate gave in to public pressure um, to stand for what he knew to be true about Jesus. Um, Jesus was innocent of the crimes, but he did not deserve execution. And in the end, Pilate made an eternally defining choice regarding the king of the Jews. He relented to the mob and he sealed his place in history as the one who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. So, how about you? Is this an area, is there an area in your life where you are denying the truth of Jesus um, and deceiving yourself? Is there a place in your life where public indifference to the truth of Scripture prevents you from openly acknowledging who you know Jesus Christ to be? Every human being faces the same exact choice that Pilate did, who is Jesus, the God of the universe, or an eccentric backwater rabbi. Pilate feared the cultural forces around him that could take the peace of Jerusalem, the political fury of the Rome, the Caesar who could take his power, and the world's power systems that still exert pressure on people today to not identify with Jesus. In his ways, even though Pilate was in the presence of God, he felt the pressure of life more than the presence of God. I'm going to give you another Easter egg. It is possible that the words over the cross were written in such a way to form the um, the Tetragamatron, the unpronounceable name of God, Yahweh. I've included this in your notes. So Pilate refused to revise the epitaph he had composed. And this may have been more significant than it appears in the English translations. The Hebrew epitaph is is shown, I've got it in your notes, shown below. Remember, Hebrew is read from right to left. And if you read it from right to left, it is Y-H-W-H. If you look at the acrostic. And if you look at um, the Old Testament, There are lots of acrostics that are used, um, you know, letters forming sentences in the Old Testament. It was it's actually woven into the fabric. It's one of the aspects of the Old Testament. And so it very well may be that uh, Pilate was taking one more stick in the eye of the Jewish leaders, saying to them, I'm going to write this in such a way because he would have known the languages of the day and he would have known the name of the God that served the capital where he was, the big temple. He would have it could be he was sticking it in their eye one more time saying this is I am. You can make your own decisions on that and uh, research it yourself. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus is handed over to the executioners. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments into four parts, one for each soldier with the tunic remaining. It was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. Instead, let us cast lots to see who will get it. And this was to fulfill the scripture that divided my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. So that is what the soldiers did. Now, Psalm 22, I hope you all know this. And Psalm 22 is um, written by David. It's a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Um, In another gospel, it is one of the last words that Christ uh, cries out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And that's Psalm 22. If you go and read Psalm 22... It is amazing the details that are listed in that passage a thousand years before Christ is crucified, centuries before the Persians even invent crucifixion, and yet the details of that passage line up exactly with the events of this day. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says, They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Now that's fulfilling a prophecy, and I can guarantee you those Roman soldiers were pagans, 
They knew nothing of Jewish prophecy. They knew they probably have never even heard one of the Psalms of David. And yet here they are by the will of God, fulfilling prophecy they know nothing about. There's also some allusion to the typification of Christ displayed in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, the coat of many colors, Joseph, the prince of Egypt. You may have done a Bible study on that before. There's a whole parallel of typification of Joseph lining up with things that happened in the life of Jesus. And this would be one of those they would point to that this tunic could have been very much like the one that his father was given to Joseph when he was a boy, the coat of many colors. In 25 and 27, we see this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and her sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. So from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. We continue on in verse 28. After this, knowing that everything had now been accomplished, and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in wine and put it on a stalk of hyssop and lifted it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he yielded up his spirit. <clears throat> I know we've, uh, I'm, I am concerned we would run out of time before we get to the end of the study, but there's a few details I do want to give to you. Um, the first one will be the word, it is finished. So in our, in our English, it's several words, but in the language of the day, it would have been one word, tetelestai. And tetelestai is a beautiful word because it, it, it captures a lot of different things that are going on here. If, um, if I were a master artist and I could paint beautiful paintings, there would be a point where I would no longer take the brush and touch the palette and add one more brush stroke of color to my painting because I would realize if I added one more stroke of color in any detail in the painting, it would ruin it because it's a masterpiece, it's fully complete. So if I were that person who's the artist and I'm painting the masterpiece and I get to the point where I say nothing more can be done here, I would say the word, the telestop, the masterwork, the masterpiece is complete. Nothing else can be added or done to improve it. Now, if I were a prisoner in the Roman Empire and I were in a uh, cell and a pardon was granted to me, or maybe I'd done my time, they would take the piece of paper, they would have my sentence on it for what the crimes are, and at the bottom of it, they would write the word to telestai. And they would go to me where my cell is, they'd open the door and they nailed to the door. And this would be saying that your prison, uh, your, your, your crimes, your debt to society is paid in full. It's also what could be stamped on a receipt for the same thing if you have a mortgage or debt to telestai. Now, all those words, all those images capture what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's completing the masterwork of our redemption. He's paying in full the debt that we have been imprisoned by. And um, we are free from that prison of sin. It's a fantastic word. It's beautiful. We just can't capture it in the English. Now, there's a couple of the details I want to bring to you. The stalk of hyssop, it seems to be just an extraneous detail, unless you remember two things. The Holy Spirit is the writer, and he never puts in an extra detail. He never deletes an extra detail. So there's a reason that's used there, okay? So if you remember back to the original Passover in Egypt, that night when they would take and sacrifice the lamb, and they would take the blood and they'd put it on the lintel in the post of the home to protect themselves from the angel of death, that final plague that night. In the text, in Exodus twenty-two twelve, it says this, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood. And in that basin, you will strike the lintel and the two sides of the post. And that blood is in the basin and none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. There's something else in this, um, this odd detail in this passage. Jerusalem is not by the sea. It's not a coastal city. It's not a coastal village. It's not a seaport. And yet there's a sea sponge listed as one of the items in this section of the text at the crucifixion. So how does it get there? Yeah, this is the kind of the nasty part. Yeah. So it most likely came from a Roman soldier. The sea sponge was a standard issue item to a Roman soldier it was given to the soldier for them to be used in their daily hygiene. More specifically, 
it would have been used to wipe their bottom after they used the bathroom. So this is another form of devaluation of Jesus, this criminal, another point of humiliation for Jesus. I know. So thirdly, I want to take you back to the start of the story. Remember in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, the fall happens. In verse 15, it says this, I, God speaking, will put enmity between thee and the woman, that's the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, Easter egg. Once a person dies, blood stops circulating. Gravity begins to pool all the blood to the lowest extremities of the person. This is called liver mortis or lividity. Lividity begins when the skin um, begins with the skin where the blood has settled, given a bright red tone. Are you with me? To the common eye, it would appear like a severe bruise on the skin. So let me set the picture for you. If you were there that day and you saw Jesus die on that cross, by the time they take him down off the cross, the blood would have settled from his upper extremities and taken place in his legs and his ankles and his feet. He would appear to have very completely bruised heels, fulfilling the first announcement of the coming Redeemer to humanity. You shall bruise his heel. The side of Jesus' pierce in the closing verses here, 31 to 37. It was a day of preparation, and the next day was a high Sabbath. In order that the bodies would not remain on the cross during the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies removed. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified by Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and blood and water immediately came out. And the one who saw this has testified and his testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth so that you too may believe. This is one of those rare places in the Gospels where the audience, we, are addressed by the writer. Because these things happen so that the scripture might be fulfilled, none of his bones will be broken. In addition, another scripture, verse 37, says this, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. And here we have uh, so much going on in this section. It's going to be kind of difficult to pull it all in, so you'll be free to speak up. The thing I want to focus on is a couple of things. I want to focus on the blood and the water. Now, medical experts will look at this text, and they will declare to you that Jesus was dead before the spear pierced his side. And the reason is because they say the blood and the water uh, of a person in your body, you know, you're mostly water. This is a huge percentage. In fact, as you get older, it's a struggle to keep water in your body. You're a massive, most of you, most of us are just all water. But that blood and water um, at death, when the when the circulation of the blood ceases, they begin to separate. I've already told you what happens to the blood. It goes, it settles to the lowest point of gravity. But the water, for some reason, begins to collect around your heart. Don't know why, but that's how it works. So in medical terms, the blood and the water indicate a very specific type of death. It's a term, uh, some form of hemothorax um, or pleural effusion, both of which can be brought on by hypovolemic shock or blood loss. Quite literally, Jesus didn't die because of asphyxiation, which is a very common way of dying on a cross. One reason they would break their legs so they couldn't push themselves up and get more air in their lungs. He had already died probably from loss of blood. There is an event that happens in all our lives involving blood and water. Now, none of us remember this, but I assure you that it did happen. Okay. When your new life appeared on the earth, blood and water issued forth, marking the occasion. Blood and water issue forth from the side of Jesus as his death gives life to the new life of the church on earth. So I'm going to give you a couple more things, all right? Um, One is called um, about the spear. So the spear um, that pierced the side of Jesus, or who's watching The Chosen right now? 
Who's who's watched The Chosen? Some of it. Some of it. All right. So there's a character in um, this. This is a story about the disciples. And um, one of the disciples is one of my favorite disciples in the story is Matthew. I think he's a very interesting character, the way they put him together. So Matthew has a friend, if you will, who was his Roman guard at his tax station. His name is Gaius. All right. So Gaius is, I think, getting prepared in season four to be the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and says, heal my son in the distance. You don't have to approach him. You have authority. I know what authority is like. I think they're preparing. That's probably going to show up in season four. I'm going to go ahead and speculate that Gaius will also show up at the crucifixion of Jesus in the final season and that Gaius will be the one responsible for the spear. Historically, the person who held the spear was named Gaius. Um, depends on who you want to believe, Catholic lore, Orthodox lore, whatever. So the spear supposedly does exist. It was kept in a uh, museum in Vienna, in Austria, Vienna. It's called the Hofburg Spear or the Spear of Destiny. And um, there is some speculation that uh, a, a young paper hanger and failed artist in the 1920s and 30s who lived in Vienna would often go to the museum and sit and stare at the spear and imagine what power it had because the rumor was it was a spear that killed Christ. So it had special occultic power. And then one day that young man became Fuhrer of Germany and drove into Vienna and marched into the museum and took the spear because he thought it would help him conquer the world. Some believe this, some don't. You can do your own research. There's lots of notes uh, and uh, there's things in there. It makes up for a very intriguing story, even if it's not true. So please don't lose sight of the obvious stuff that's happening here, though. Jesus will completely typify the Passover lamb. None of his bones of his body will be broken. While the ones who are crucified with him do have their legs broken, have bones broken. And this breaking of the legs is instigated by the Pharisees, but it's implemented by pagan Roman soldiers. And neither party is aware of the role they have playing out this prophecy that Think about it. Why would they not just break his legs? If he's already dead, just go ahead and break his legs. What's the difference? They're already breaking the other one's legs, but they don't. This again goes back to that whole idea that God is in complete control of all these events that are happening. And that should give us great peace in our lives. Because even when we do have that turmoil and we have that stress and we have this chaos that goes on around us, even if it's not personally affecting you, you just read the news and see what goes on in our world. It's, it's rather unsettling. It's disorienting. Things change so quickly. But we have peace in these circumstances because we see that God takes the worst and is able to make the best out of it. Let's continue. So we see this doctrine on display. The characteristic of God is on display here as well. The God who knows the beginning from the end. The all-knowing God. The omniscient God. We see the all-powerful God on display. Because he is uh, allowing his perfect will of the Father to be played out. The all-powerful God working out exactly everything needs to happen to accomplish his plan of redemption for all of humanity. Now, these ideas are encapsulated in this doctrine, the kingdom of God. So the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're used interchangeably in Scripture. And they describe this sovereign rule of God, his controlling reign throughout all of human history. As believers, Pastor Perry and I were talking after last class, as believers, we see history as heading to a point in time, a rendezvous with destiny. There is an end goal. We see something happening, and we see things coming together that are taking us to that destination as time flows by. But he pointed out very wisely that many other religions in our world do not have this concept. They have no concept that it's all going to a point. One of the reasons I think it's like that is because your Bible that you hold in your lap is between uh, uh, 25 and 29% prophecy, depending on who you're asking to divide it up. Now, many of those prophecies have already been fulfilled, and there are a great many that still have not been fulfilled that relate to the second coming of Christ. But because of what you have in your lap, that prophetic nature of the book of, of the Bible gives you great faith as well, because you can sit there and say, why is God telling me what's going to happen? Doesn't he know I'm going to be scared? Maybe. He also is wanting you to, to cue, the, cue the emergency alert. Are you scared? You got to turn it off, though. Yeah. Silence! 
So in those moments of alarm, thank you for that. <laughs> in those moments of trial and tumult and what's going to happen next, you know, you can rest. You can rest in the peace that God's got this. He's fully in control, even when you don't understand what's happening around you and you can't make sense out of it sometimes. We have to know that this is God's story. We're just playing our part in it and we just need to pay attention to do it. So, <clears throat> yes, sir. Things in this story is Pilate's question what is truth? And yes. You could say he'd be the, the first um, post modern. Uh, person saying that there is no the truth, but it goes way deeper than that. Some of the deadest uh, parts of the history of the church uh, is post-Reformation uh, regarding about oh, 17th, 18th centuries called orthodoxy, where you figure, uh, the, the people really figured that they could uh, distill all the truth into doctrines, fold it, staple it, put it on a shelf and say this is something that I control. God will not have it. He says, I am the truth. And the truth continues to need to be revealed. So let's say, for instance, as an example, it is finished. That's not just prophecy. That is an announcement to you to be received by faith. What's finished? The kingdom of the evil one has been done in. Your guilt and your, your sins are taken away. It is finished. And it is a truth that is a continuing, ongoing revelation to you day by day. The truth is not something that can be folded, stapled, and put up on a shelf so that I can control it. God says, I'm in control of the truth, and I will reveal it to you. So we have to be very careful as Christians that we don't uh, become dead Orthodox people who say, I know, I know all the doctrines, and I know all the Lutherans are great at that. I mean, we have more doctrines than you can possibly shake a stick at. And we're probably the most uh, doctrinally correct people in all of Christendom. That does not make us in control of the truth. It does. Doctrines are very valuable. Uh, but when Pilate asks, what is truth? We need to figure out, no, 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 no. It's not in my, the, the truth is not in my control. God, Jesus is the truth. And Jesus continually reveals himself to us. And I am simply a listener. I am saved by my ears. I am saved by the coming of the word of the truth of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Who says, it is finished? And it's really hard for me to believe that word, it is finished, because I looked in the mirror and I'm going, there's a lot of objective evidence, Perry, that you're not going to make it. <laughs> and so the truth of the announcement of Jesus, it is finished, needs to come to me fresh every day. And I claim it uh, as a word of God. I'm, I'm going to be saved by my ears and not by my actions. Uh, the truth, think about it. The truth is not foldable, stapleable, or put up on a shelf. It's not in your mastery. It is God's uh, agency, and it is God's authority over you. And we humbly receive this truth, and we say thank you, God, for your steadfast love. Thank you that you're the I am. You know? Yes. Um, so uh, just be thinking about that. Yeah, I also, I would like to back mm -hmm. that up. Yes. Um, and I've been thinking this this whole time while you give us Easter eggs and things like that. And I go, ooh, that's another one, that's another one, that's another one, that's another one. You could have 10,000. Yes. Or you could have none. And you could still believe that Jesus died for you because the Holy Spirit can reveal it to you. This is what I've been thinking. I'm just going to say what you said in a, in a different way. You can be the simplest person in this room, and God's Holy Spirit will still, still speak to you. And then one day, three years later, somebody will go, you know the spear? Hitler got a hold of that spear one time and didn't. Wow, that makes me a believer. That's just a piece of information. All of this is just pieces of information until God's Holy Spirit yeah. turns it into mm -hmm. something different. Yeah. It turns it into life. And so... While a lot of this is interesting, and I love it, it's kind of like on my other side of my life, I'm a news junkie, political analyst junkie and all that. But at the end of the day, I just say, this is still in the great struggle of life. This is yeah. the evil versus good. And I have to discern if this is evil or if this is good. And God is working out all this political shenanigans. Uh, not one of us has the ability. I've tried to go to Washington, D.C. I've tried to we protest. Do. 
I don't have control over them, but God does. Yes. And I put it all under that big umbrella. That does not mean that I never study it anymore. It does not mean that I never look at it anymore. It just means I. it all comes through that umbrella that God knows what he's doing. And that's on the political side, the world side, and all that junk that's going on over there. But then down on my own life, I'm back to, I don't think I will ever know enough. I've learned 16 Easter eggs in the last two weeks that I was <laughs> kind of about and knew about. There must be 55 more that I've got to learn. I've got more. Yeah. But no, I know. Yeah. So that's all they do. And, and really, most of the Bible for me only confirms what I already believed and said. So so it is my encourager, as as I tell you, most of the time, my interactions with people, almost all of them are not salvation moments. Right. They are encouraging moments. Right. Whether it's with the Amazon guy or the girl at the nurse's office mm-hmm. or whatever, they're encouraging moments to say, hey, I'm with you. Sister, I'm with you, brother. Hey, I believe this. The king's in control. He's still on the throne. Yeah, bad thing happened to me this week, but God is still in control. And they go, I thank you, brother. I needed that. Off he goes to deliver packages. Yeah. That, and anyway, that's our long way to say this. And that's our that is our <clears throat> that is our big takeaway, I think, from this chapter is if we can witness all the bad things that happened to Jesus through the hands of these evil people political powers, religious powers, cultural powers, the mob, the riot, um, and still God makes good come from it. What is there in our lives that he cannot take and redeem? And that should give you a great peace to know that he was in complete control of everything, even the detail to the type of stick the guy grabs to shove the the dirty sponge in Jesus' mouth. I mean, it's amazing. But there's so many details that I've I've learned preparing for this. I wish I could give all of them to you. Um, I can't. Um, so let me just try. This is radical. Luther holds up the Bible and says, This is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. This is the manger that yeah. holds it. That's what he said. That's a good one. So, just as prophecy is fulfilled at the birth of Jesus, his life, and miracles, his death and resurrection, when he returns, it completes the fulfillment of the remaining prophecies. We will see the realized kingdom of God openly displayed on earth. So when we look at life through the lens of the kingdom of God, Jesus, the true king, who will reign forever, the current chaos, the, the drain of hope that the evil one constantly foists upon us and upon all humanity, all of that dissipates because we look past the limitation of human leaders. We look past ourselves to the infinite blessings of our citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God. So we can experience fullness of life here and now <clears throat> as we await the blessings of eternal life with God in heaven. So if we're looking at life through the eternal lens of the kingdom of heaven, it can bring us peace and joy, knowing that every circumstance in our life is, is under God's sovereign control. And we can anticipate a bright tomorrow, despite the disappointments of today. We can... Um, Say we can receive hope, we can receive strength uh, from Jesus each day. Um, we're going to close up the chapter. I've got, I'm going to try and do this miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. 38 and 40 to 42. So afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him remove the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and removed the body. Nicodemus, verse 39, who had previously come to Jesus at night, also brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices, according to the Jewish burial custom. Now, there was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus there. First, I'm going to try and wrap it up quickly. First, we see these two secret followers of Jesus engaging in a very public devotion to their controversial master. The two very wealthy men 
of their day. Some scholars will even speculate that these two were among the wealthiest of men in the nation of Israel, if not outright number one and number two in terms of wealth accumulation in someone's lifetime in the nation of Israel at this time. So they would be on the Forbes list. So let me demonstrate the financial capability of these men. The 75 pounds of myrrh, aloe, spices, maybe sandalwood would have been worth in today's dollars, an estimated value of equivalent to $150,000 to $200,000. That's almost a quarter million dollars. That's more than some cars cost. Some electric cars. Some electric cars, yeah. Some more. So, yeah. So furthermore, Joseph and Nicodemus, not only this financial sacrifice they're making, they're also, they would have made... Um, they would have had some very significant pull, political pull, that they could just walk into the office of the Roman governor and pull these levers and say, we would like that permission of this person who is crucified. They're displaying a lot of political clout to be able to do something like that. Now, yes, thank you. Um, and also, we must not lose sight of this next thing when they're doing this act, these two men. The fact that with this action, Joe and Nick are walking away from their old way of approaching God because they, in handling the dead body of Jesus, have now forsaken their right to participate in the double Sabbath, to participate in the festival of first fruits that shows up on that Sunday, immediately after the Sabbath on the Saturday. They have forsaken the law as their master and have pledged a new allegiance to their new master, Jesus the Christ. So let me apply this to us and challenge you. Is there any area of your life where you are willing to be cut off from participating and disqualified by the community because you choose to be identified with Jesus? Is there a comparable sacrifice that you would be willing to make which would cost you the admiration of people as you identify with Jesus? That is a challenge for us as believers is to constantly remember who God is, he's sovereign and fully control, and then who we are. We belong to him. And as a result of that, we can face our days of turmoil and trial with peace and joy. And we also have a responsibility to publicly identify ourselves with our master, with our Lord, with our king, with our sovereign. Yes, ma'am. It's like that too, because... When you're shopping and because of the way things are, employees that work in stores are telling you happy holiday and leave and I'll say Merry Christmas. Yes. Sometimes they'll come back with that Merry Christmas. I will not display anything that says happy holidays. It's Christmas. And even though if I hear it's here at work, when I worked in the office in New York, they would put up, you know, Xmas party. Mm. And I said, they got it. You didn't sign up. I said, I don't have any Xmas party. I'm going to a Christmas party. And I would cross out that Xmas and put Christ in there. And I said, you guys have to understand the reason why we're having this Christmas party is because of Jesus. So you're taking my Christ. You're yes. taking Christ out of Christmas. Yeah. And they're like, wow, I never realized that kind of thing. But I think it's like this time of year where People, you know, who are Christians, and somebody says Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, because that's what I celebrate Christmas, not a holiday. Yep. Yeah. Some people said that I heard that that it's really not an X; it's a cross turned over because they couldn't have a cross straight up because they would put a T on it, so they put it sideways. Yeah, and there's people that say it's the Kai because it was uh, Kairos was Christ, and yeah, yeah I think more. the the reality is that they're just denying Jesus. Yeah, but just denying Jesus. But remember, in a lost world, uh, everybody's on a different journey too, and uh, this is our season, as is Easter. These are the two times a year when we get to, with love, joyfully proclaim Christ, mm -hmm. but not in a mean way. And by that, I, and I don't mean you were in a mean way. I'm saying that w the way you you did it, they got it. And they, they understood it. But you don't have to go necessarily, um, you know, um, accuse all of them of being Christ haters or whatever. Right. But with love, 
explain the true meaning. So a child is watching a Christmas movie with Santa Claus or Shrek. You're the adult. You can lead them <laughs> to that. You can lead them to that. Let's pray. Remember, this is your this is your time to shine. You put here for a purpose and a reason. Don't forget your purpose and your task. All right. Proclaim your master. Jesus, we thank you for the witness of your crucifixion and what you do for us to save us. Help us not to be ashamed of you, but proclaim your name boldly and to share our faith openly. In the name of Jesus. Amen.